I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you can build a platform upon which other people build their activities, business, and life, you will have a powerful brand. Strava did exactly this by uniting cyclists regardless of the type of bike computer they used. Then, they gamified the experience to make it more engaging. And because it's better when your friends are using it, it's inherently viral, which helps explain why they're growing like mad and able to attract massive investment dollars. It didn't start out like that. It wasn't always mobile-centric. And the original idea was to create a virtual locker room to brag about your athletic prowess. But they've mastered the art of the pivot time and again to grow the platform, ensuring it best serves the largest possible audience. Here, co-founder Mark Ganey tells their startup story and shares their strategies for growth. Welcome to the Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Mark, you are one of a couple of co-founders of Strava, which has, over the past few years, just completely blown up. And you know, as far as any cyclist is concerned, really like the way to sort of track and record your rides and make it shareable. And um, you, know, what, what's impressed me the most with what you guys have done, and even like right when it launched, as soon as I saw it, I was just blown away because you guys took everything that was wrong with you know the, the single brand uploads and recording systems and got rid of all of the problems with those by building something that was both device agnostic and gamifying cyclinks, which just pulled people in and made it fun to use. Um, and I don't want to talk about how and why you came up with all that, but uh, first of all, like where did the idea come from? So we got to go back a few years. Uh, my co-founder, I'll refer to him frequently here, Michael Horvath, he's been my best friend for for 30 years and we met on a on the crew team in college uh we were both undergrads at harvard in the late 80s and the reason that's important not only did a friendship develop that's lasted 30 years and we built two businesses together so we've been longtime business partners but the other thing that was relevant is that we had this really amazing experience on that crew team in that boathouse with you know, a group of guys where the camaraderie and the esprit de corps and just the teamwork and the coaching and the competition and the trash talk and everything that came from being on that team was really special. And the only problem was we graduated and <laughs> poof, it, it all disappeared, right? And so we have a business plan, Tyler, it goes all the way back to 1995. I graduated in 90. Uh, by 95, we had this business plan that we were developing. It was called Kana Sports at the time. It was not Strava, but it, the same thesis, which was let's go build a virtual locker room where all of our buddies now that are distributed around the world, we can all come back together on the internet and basically trash talk and have fun and keep each other motivated. The theory being that it's no longer about how fast or how fit, but just can we keep each other active? Can we keep each other motivated? So we had this idea. It, it, 
I won't bore you with, or we can talk later about how we got from 1995 to 2009 when we finally launched. But the beauty of uh, launching it in 2009, when we actually put the team together, was enough things had happened technologically to allow us to, to really have some fun with the uh, with the data and and see if we could inspire people, like you mentioned, to maybe get out there and just do one more ride than they had before. Cool. And so, how did it go from crew to cycling? So when we sat down, it's one of the great uh, uh, misconceptions of Strava. A lot of people think that it was started by these hardcore, really sort of amazing cyclists. Uh, I'm the first to admit we're not very good at cycling. At least I won't speak for Michael, but for myself, uh, I most people know I rarely ride on the road these days because I just, I've got bad karma been been hit twice by cars i've had one accident that cost me 11 surgeries and uh, most people would say i'm a pretty bad cyclist uh but we love getting out on the dirt we love getting out on the trails we love getting out on the road and what we found when we decided to go launch strava we always had this vision that we could support this global community of athletes across sports in fact ironically my history growing up was as a runner more so than as a cyclist or, or even a rower i didn't row until i got to college uh, but we needed a go-to-market strategy. And our thesis was it was much more important for us to go deep and be authentic with one group than it was to try to serve the whole world full of athletes uh, at the very beginning. And when we looked at the marketplace, we saw two things we really liked about the cycling community. One was the simple fact that they weren't very well served. There were lots of running apps that were hitting the market, but there really wasn't anything dedicated to the cycling community. The other thing we loved about the cyclists was that they were they were enamored with data already. They were they were very sophisticated when it came to data. They were using power meters and their heart rate monitors, and you know they they obsessed over wheel size and and lots of different things that um, you can take in from a data perspective, but then tell a story. And so that was our thesis. We went to market with the idea that we would build for cyclists, uh, see if we could create something authentic for that community. And if we were fortunate, we could then, over time, go after additional verticals. Um, so that's how we started. Okay. It probably helps, too, that there are so many cyclists globally. And I think, if I had to guess, I'd say maybe only runners outnumber cyclists in terms of kind of a recreational participant sport. Is that What other sports were you guys looking at? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. One of the beauties of serving, you know, we we obviously are trying to be authentic today for running and cycling, and we'd argue that those are the universal sports. Whether you are participating in soccer or you're a Formula One race car driver or you're uh, you're climbing Everest, it turns out that you train by running and riding. Uh, and if anything, we also got really lucky, Tyler, in that when we launched in 2009, frankly, there was this global renaissance in cycling that uh, kind of caught us by surprise. And, and one of the ironies over the last seven or eight years, our cycling continues to grow at rates that we had never forecast. Uh, I think it's just a tribute to, frankly, the way in which cycling has developed as something both globally in terms of its participation, but also just the fact that people are realizing there's so many different reasons to ride a bike. Uh, there's obviously the opportunities for competition and, and just social enjoyment, but more and more we're seeing inside these cities, the, the commute aspects and the, just the, you know, different forms of transportation. So it's been really fun to find ourselves in the middle of 
as you mentioned, just sort of a great growth globally uh, in that one activity. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, I want to talk about the different user types of this one because you mentioned commuters as well. But let's before we get to that. So we sort of stay on some kind of timeline. So you guys launched in two thousand nine. What year? I know you had the other idea back as far as two thousand five, but what? Or sorry, ninety five. What? Um, what year did you guys start working in earnest on Strava as it we know it today? Like, how long did it take to develop yeah, it? So, so two thousand nine was the official start date when we had a half a dozen guys that were together. We had some true engineering talent, really commercializing stuff. You have to go back to. Um, really 2007, 2008, there was a classic thing. Uh, not many people would remember this, but our early members would remember something we used to call the green machine. It was a website all decked out in green uh, before Strava orange really emerged as our primary color. And we had probably two dozen cyclists that were beta testing for us. Uh, this was Strava launched not as a mobile company, but purely as a web company. We would only accept data coming from Garmin devices in the early days because it was one of the few frankly it was one of the few devices that really we could we could trust the data the the actual data was reliable and so we were a web company uh taking care of a handful of athletes that were uploading from their from their computer they were taking their garment device off their handlebars plugging it into their computer and then uploading to strava it wasn't until 2011 2012 that we introduced our mobile solutions and started to bring mobile to Strava, which really opened the doors for Strava, both in terms of access. You know, you no longer had to spend $300 to become a member in Strava and really begin to enjoy the benefits. Um, and it also opened our eyes to the opportunity that we can now take the experience and begin to offer something similar in in the case of running, which was really the second primary market that we wanted to develop for. And that was in 2012, 2013. So when you say no longer have to spend three hundred dollars, does that mean like spend it on a GPS cycling computer, or was there was it not always a free correct to use Strava? So the device, the external device. No, that's correct. It was it was the device. We just saw that as a major hurdle for somebody. If you had to go out, you know, you hear about Strava, you hear about this great opportunity and this this fun that everybody's having, and oh by the way, you need to go go buy a, a GPS device in order to participate. Uh, and everybody at that point, you know, it was. By 2011, the phones themselves were funding, starting to develop strong battery life, which was always a concern. Uh, and also their GPS chipsets were significantly better. So at that point, we were willing to take a risk and uh, offer the ability for someone to track their rides uh, via their mobile phone or a Garmin device. Um, what, and was it still Garmin specific or yes. could you use any other brand cycling no. computer at that point? Yeah. Yeah, no, then we... You're right. The other thing that we then became very focused on was becoming Switzerland within the device marketplace. Uh, uh, we found that everybody has their favorite, and we shouldn't—we're not going to stand in judgment. If you wanted to use a, a Sensor device, a TomTom device, a Garmin device, a Wahoo device, uh, we just wanted to make sure that we could work with them as strong partners and allow you to upload that data from wherever it was coming, uh, and create one seamless experience on Strava. So. Uh, it took us a while. I mean, candidly, I think the device manufacturers for many years couldn't figure out whether Strava was friend or foe, and we tried to explain over and over that we're not going to get in the device business. That's that's not our forte, uh, but that we can enhance their experience by bringing something to the uh, 
to the industry that didn't really exist before, as you mentioned, kind of not just the gamification, but the ability to bring the athletes together in one place and share the data and compare and so forth. So uh, if you fast forward to 2015, by then we had every major manufacturer uh, integrated effectively into Strava. And that's, that's been great for us and hopefully for our partners. I think everybody's found it's been a win-win. Yeah. Well, and, and some of them, it took a while. Like I think wasn't Polar a little bit of a holdout on making their avail- data available? They were. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, <laughs> I think everybody, uh, it, it took everybody their own time and their own strategies. They all have their own digital strategies. And so trying to figure out sort of, uh, you know, even today, someone like Garmin Connect, we're big fans of what they're doing with Connect and, and how they, you know, what their use case is and what they're trying to do to support. But they've been great at over time learning to think about what are those points of um, sort of common interest where we can create a seamless experience. Yeah. Well, and it's like you don't want to force somebody to only be able to share data with the people who are using a Garmin, right? Like from a Garmin standpoint, I would think, well, okay, look, most of your friends are using something else, even though most people are probably using garments. Like it, it makes sense what you guys are doing because it opens the doors up to work with, you know, you can share your data with all of your friends, no matter what they're using. And it's, it's just seems like a much better solution. And obviously that's worked in your favor because you guys are huge. Um, so let's talk numbers real quick. How many uh, subscribers do you guys have or accounts do you have free and paid all total? Yeah. It's, it's one of the few things in a privately held company that we still don't spend a lot of time socializing. I can give you some, some ballpark figures. So we've got tens of millions of athletes today who have registered with Strava. Uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see on average today about 10 million activities uploaded to Strava any given week. Um, we, add, we add a million members to Strava about every 30 to 45 days. Uh, and that's globally. So one of the things that's interesting about Strava is almost 80% of our membership is outside of the United States. It's, you will find Strava being uploaded in practically every country in the world. It's going to be, I think, somewhere between 180 and 190 countries today that we support. Um, and that's and that continues to be cycling is really sort of the, the primary market. Running has done very well for us. Uh, as you suggested earlier, it's probably a slightly larger addressable market. Uh, but boy, the enthusiasm for cycling worldwide has been awfully fun to watch. And so we continue to see that really well. The other thing that's important, just because you brought it up, was on the device side, still well over half of our uploads today, well over, are coming from all the different devices. So I think that that strategy continues to, to prove out really well. They want to use a, a dedicated device to capture their, their activity. And then they hopefully we're just trying to make it easier and easier for them to get it into Strava and then have some fun afterwards. Yeah, well, it's like a selling point. I mean, if there were a device available today that was not able to upload to Strava, I don't think anybody would buy it. <laughs> um, so you it's, answered... It's, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, so you, one of my questions was, what percent of your users is U.S.? And you answered that. So it's <clears throat> kind of a, a follow-up to that. Like, you guys started marketing was it was it just an immediate open the floodgates and anyone can sign up was it kind of a a slow release where you had to apply to get access and then eventually you opened it up how did how did you guys roll this out yeah no it's a good question we we there was no application there was no uh, we weren't trying to hide it but very humble roots um i mean i still remember the very first non-strava employee who 
uploaded to Strava. His name was David, and David, <laughs> and he's still with us today, and he's still uploading on you know on a frequent basis. And uh, first it was one, and then it was two. And as I mentioned to you, we had about uh, I think we had somewhere between a dozen and two dozen uh, guys that uh, joined us in the summer of 2008 to test, and uh, you know those those 20 guys became 30, became 40. I think it took us probably. I won't get this quite right, Tyler, but I think it was about three, three to four years before we saw our first million people on Strava, and it was just a, it was word of mouth. It was, uh, you know, I wish we could say that we we had some magical, great marketing strategy that allowed us to to be successful, but I think fundamentally we were very fortunate in that we had, we had an authentic experience, and it was only better as you invited your friends. And the other thing that we learned, too, that was important for Strava, I think one of the nice things about cycling, it's inherently already social. You know, a lot of people always ask us the question, well, how did you build such a robust community? And I'm always quick to point out the community was already there. And, you know, cycling, by definition, there's just this wonderful community that exists, whether it's a bunch of guys who get together on the weekend and do a you know, weekend warrior ride or it's that dedicated racing team. But the communities were there and we just gave them sort of a new way in which they could interact and, and play and have fun and, and communicate effectively. So it, uh, sorry, long answer to your question, but really it was, it was word of mouth and um, some good grassroots uh, work on our part yeah. uh, and a great marketing team. I mean, we've, we've got a great team here today that continues to work those same strategies. Right. Well, let's, yeah, well, let's talk about marketing a little bit later because obviously the marketing strategy has had to evolve at some point from word of mouth to to more than that. But um, before we get there, so when you guys started rolling out internationally, was that again just like people found it and they just started using it, or was there more of a push in some way to reach audience in, in other countries? So it was a little bit of both. I think that the, the beauty of being an internet-based business is uh, maybe even blessing and curse. You just have to accept that you're going to be global from the day that you launch. Anybody can get access to you, and if they can speak English, which was what our system was originally designed in, then, then they were playing. Uh, and as I mentioned, because cycling was inherently social to begin with, what we would see is that one person in in London or in Sao Paulo or in Tokyo would download it, hear from a friend here in the States, and then they'd share it with four of their friends. And the next thing we knew, we had this pocket of influence that would start to develop. What we did starting in late 2013 and throughout 14 was then get serious about supporting our international community. And it starts with the basics. So, you know, we had internationalized or localized in uh, about 15 different languages and just make sure that we could give again an authentic sort of localized experience for Strava and in doing that that then developed into what we have today where we actually even have we've gone to the lengths of beginning to develop literally country managers so we have people who work at Strava who are dedicated to specific countries uh, that really are there to make sure that we're understanding the needs of that audience and that, that community there and, and you know, how to, how to continue to even evolve the experience to, to meet their needs. Um, you know, a trail runner in, in South America might have a very different experience on Strava than, you know, your cat two roadie in the Netherlands. And so how do we ensure that Strava feels, feels inherently authentic for either group? And so that's, that's been the work we've done in the last couple of years. 
Yeah. So what you mentioned management, um, like, I mean, what kind of ongoing management beyond say, just tailoring the user experience to different countries and stuff? I mean, what is required in managing an app of this size with, with such a large user base? Uh, well, it's, it's funny. In some respects, we love to joke at Strava that we definitely use the two sides of our brain, left and right. Uh, if you were to come visit Strava, our headquarters in San Francisco, we would look like a pretty typical software company in that, uh, you know, we've got 130, 140 people today. Um, it's largely software engineers and developers uh, and product managers, designers, product designers, user experience experts. I mean, these are world-class individuals who, if they weren't working for Strava, they'd be working at, you know, any number of probably the high-tech companies here in the Valley, an Airbnb or a Pinterest or an Uber or Facebook, uh, but they're just passionate about what we're doing. Uh, and so a lot of work goes into, if you just imagine what happens when one upload comes in and you're dealing with millions of GPS points and we're trying to ensure that the the accuracy is right and that the leaderboards, you show up right on the leaderboard, and that your segment analysis is done, there's actually a lot of processing that takes place there. So that's a big part of our business is just making sure that, that we've got that lockdown and that we're effectively sort of managing the data like any great software company would. We use the other half of our brain though, Tyler, because we're, we're acutely aware that we're, we're in the business of sport. We're in the business of, we want to entertain and motivate the world's athletes and keep people active. And so we often take cues from many of the other great sports companies in the world, but you know, whether it's a Nike or an Oakley or it's a Specialized or it's a Garmin. And a lot of that is, frankly, being out in the field and spending time with our with our members, with the community, uh, uh, you know, doing various events. How do we show up at something like the tour that's coming up uh, next month? And how do we work with the organizers there? And, you know, what can Strava do to add to that experience? Um, how do we work with the press? How do we work with the, the industry as a whole to kind of rethink uh, the way that digital can play an, an ongoing experience in somebody's, you know, cycling life. And so that's, that's the other half of our business that's developed now is, you know, we've got a big office in Europe. Uh, our head of marketing actually lives in London. Uh, and we're, we're just always as late as this weekend. I know we had teams that were distributed both at cycling events, as well as, you know, like the Western States 100 is a big, trail running event we had teams there as well so we kind of we get to play in both worlds if that makes sense yeah from a development standpoint you guys overlay the data onto what google maps or open streets something else uh it's a whole mix uh we work with uh it just depends on on where you are in the experience we'll we have access to google maps and apple maps depending on the the platform you're using uh we use a partner mapbox to do a lot of custom work uh, and then we do, frankly, some of our own internal. We, we now have a pretty significant base map that has developed just given the high volumes of data that we have coming in every day at Strava. Man, so, how, yeah, it's, that's a good example of just sophistication. It's actually not one map, but many different pieces that all come together. It sounds like an insane nightmare to me. <laughs> I mean, because what yeah. happens when one, when one of them updates their system or something? Do you have to, like scramble and overnight completely rewrite your code or uh it's it's not that bad but i'm very thankful for the guys that we have on staff who are always 
trying to stay one step ahead of exactly what you just described. Yeah, it's there is a lot of updating that you're constantly trying to do. Um, it's deep partnerships. It's making sure that we're talking to Apple and Google on a very regular basis, so we understand what they're doing. Uh, uh, same thing with all the device manufacturers as they are coming out with new devices. What are we doing to ensure that um, you know we keep things synchronized? So it's it's what's the old phrase? It's the art of the dance. Right. right. We're, uh, it's one part science, but there's a lot of art that goes into it. We just have to kind of dance along with everybody. So I imagine in the early days you had to go to the device makers and say, hey, how does your device work so that we can tailor our software to pull from it? Are you guys big enough now where the device makers come to you and say, hey, what kind of information do you need us to output? Um, yeah, you know, we're still we're still pretty tiny. We're, we're um, I mean, I'd like to think that we've developed really great relationships with everybody so that there's just open communication. Um, uh, and everybody's still a little bit different. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, I think that probably out there in the industry, there are those who uh, would be reticent and there's, there's those who are really proactive and trying to come to us. Uh, probably the funniest thing is just the amount of innovation that's taking place still on the device front. I mean, it's not a week that goes by. We don't see another Kickstarter project and somebody is trying to bring a new device to market. And that's one of our challenges is how do we, we've opened up our API. We try to make it really easy to either send data to Strava or to pull data from Strava. That's the other thing. If you look at what the device guys are now doing, it's not just that they're making it easy to get the ride to Strava. They're now pulling data. If you look at it, for instance, a Garmin or a Wahoo or a number of these guys, they're now pulling segment data and suffer score data and things like that to the device so that while you're riding, you can have a Strava experience. That just takes ongoing conversations. So we actually have a team that's led by a gentleman named Mateo Ortega. He's been great. He's been with us a long time. And he it's his job to just ensure that that any partner we have has got a good kind of a good line of communication into the company. And then we just try to figure out what that roadmap should look like. Yeah, it's funny, you literally started answering my next question, which was, you know, you guys have that open ABI that lets others kind of build apps on top of Strava. And I think you guys just sent out a little press release two weeks ago that lists like, here's all of the other apps that, you know, they take the data that you guys import and then rehash it to, I don't know, be more user friendly, display prettier charts and graphs and stuff. Was that that? Um, always part of the plan was to keep it open like that, or is this just an opportunity you saw along the way? You know, I think it is a good example of uh, just been really fun to watch how something can evolve naturally. I wish that I could say that we had this this mass vision for we're going to be this platform and we're going to watch all these amazing companies and, and individuals sort of rethink the way they'd use this data. It wasn't the case. What was the case was we felt it was important to develop an open API, to develop something that could be open, that people could access and let them experiment. We needed to do it for the device manufacturers anyway. And so, again, got to give credit where it's due. It's Matega, Mateo and his team were uh, just in a position to really allow themselves and others to begin to access the data and support them effectively. And you're right. We woke up. I don't want to say we woke up one morning and just saw it, but it was another one of these things where the flywheel started to spin. And what we announced a couple of weeks ago is that we now have over 17,000 API partners on Strava that run the gamut from, as we've just talked about, you know, multi-billion dollar 
device companies that are uh, working with our API to ensure that we've got seamless integration all the way down to, you know, we've got PhD students doing amazing research on uh, everything from, uh, Tyler, it gets fascinating. I mean, looking at the way in which uh, people travel on Strava through, uh, you know, simple example, through a national park or a wilderness area and understanding the heat maps, sort of where people travel, so that they can work on fire abatement, wildfire abatement, and just sort of understanding what those traffic patterns are. I mean, it's just it's stuff that you just don't think about. We are talking to a coastal commission down in Southern California recently because they were trying to understand the effects of erosion on, uh, on the shoreline, and they realized that through a Strava heat map, they can actually see exactly where people run historically on the beach because someone naturally runs right at the tidal line right where the sand is hard from the water but not so wet that they're getting their their feet wet and it turns out we have enough data that we can actually show how that line is changing over time due to the rising seas so we're just in this really fun space today where working with all these api partners we've got folks that are creating all kinds of uh, fun ways to again play with your data which is the whole theory here let's keep this fun let's keep it entertaining and if we do that can we just get you to maybe do one more ride than you otherwise wouldn't have done before? Yeah. Well, let's keep talking about the data because that was definitely on my list. The um, You guys also provide cities a lot of ride data so that they can evaluate their bike infrastructure plans and how they're mapping out their you know bike paths and sidewalks and other uh, ways to grow. Is that is that part of your um, revenue model is selling that data to municipalities and other groups or do you guys provide that for free? So that, that is an actual business that we have today. So we do generate revenue there. Uh, it's called Strava Metro. Uh, it's got an interesting history. It's a good example of uh, one of our community members, uh, someone out of the state of Oregon, worked for the state of Oregon and uh, was really challenged with trying to better develop um, an understanding for the way in which auto traffic and cyclists were converging in cities like or uh, like Portland and other sort of major municipalities. And so this individual came to us saying, hey, do you think that you could look at the data and give us a, a greater sense of the way in which bicyclists are, are moving through our community? And we hadn't ever looked at it. Uh, but when we did, we were surprised by the results, as, as was Oregon and, and now, frankly, hundreds of other cities worldwide. It just turns out that we have so many people on Strava today that are uploading all of their activities, whether they're riding for a race or they're just commuting to work. We've got this really robust set of data in these major, these major urban areas. So we work with city planners. They pay us on an annual basis. And what they have now is a very good view into not just what's happening at a particular intersection, but the way in which people are moving from point A to point B through the city and how that changes depending on the time of day or the time of year. It turns out that cyclists are pretty smart. If it's Monday morning at 9 a.m. in the middle of rush hour, there's one route they're going to take that's safer than another. Versus on a Sunday afternoon, they can do something completely different because the traffic patterns are different with the cars. And so we can now see that in ways that were just never available before. Now, so, so when a city, That's a good example. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. Is when... 
a city pays you, does it, are they paying you just for access to the data and then they have to figure it out themselves? Or are they paying you to pull data and run reports and present like, here's what's going on to them? No, actually, yeah, good question. It's uh, So the Metro team is able to package up a data. There's actually two solutions that we have today for a, for an, uh, a major city that's actually pretty sophisticated and has a GIS team. Uh, I believe that stands for like geospatial information systems. If they have a team, they can actually take a lot of this raw. It's anonymized data, by the way. It's not they're not seeing any individual's data. They're just seeing aggregated, anonymized heat, basically, heat data that allows them to just understand uh, traffic patterns. And they can take that, and then they can run lots of different reports and, and analysis on that. We also find, though, that there are many cities without that sophisticated level of, of talent that's even available inside. And so that was something we just launched this past quarter, which is a web-based version of Strava Metro that gives them sort of that basic view into the way in which, uh, again, the commuting patterns and traffic patterns are emerging depending on day, time, time of year, and so forth. Uh, and that's uh, it's just a lighter version of the overall Strava Metro product that we've now made available to folks. Uh, and we work, yeah, that's, that's the, the basic of those two products. All right. So if somebody was smart enough, if you had that open API, could they not pull this information for free and, and figure it out themselves? Or is there a reason why the cities have to pay you? Well, there's different types of data that we make accessible on the open API. So you can actually go look today for free at our global heat map. If you just go to Strava Labs and you'll see a lot of it. But to get the level of granularity at an intersection by intersection basis, that's something that's not accessible. Uh, you know, Tyler, I'll be clear. When we launched Strava Metro, uh, we charge for it largely because we have a team that's dedicated to it, and we realized that to fund it properly, um, we needed to figure out the right economic model. But let's be clear. This is not the next $100 million that, that comes from Strava. It comes from, from our Metro our metro team or that, you know, trying to do that. It's It's... What we have found is by supporting these cities over time, we get really excited about the way in which we can help them reshape their infrastructure to just make it more appealing, just make it better for cyclists and runners and pedestrians overall. And we think that that's a good long-term investment for Strava and, and for the community as a whole. So we charge in order to cover that cost uh, and to ensure that we can build the team that needs to be there to build that. But really the opportunity long-term is can we get more people out on the roads on a bike instead of a car? All right. So, and then the other side of your revenue model that's at least externally obvious is the premium subscriptions. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, like what percent of your users are free versus paid and, and maybe some other revenue models you guys have? Sure. So the premium revenue model is, far and away the vast majority of our revenue today. Um, it's It's been there from day one. Uh, you know, we used to joke that uh, our hope was that a Strava member would consider a Strava membership to be as vital as any other piece of gear that they have that they use to go out and, and have fun. So whether that's their bike frame or their helmet or their shoes, we wanted Strava to be as, as important and, and, and to have that kind of value. And so we always had premium. Uh, it's and it's always been a freemium model. So we've we've got the 
the ability for you to access a lot of features for free. And then there's these additional features that, that are there and that continue to grow for the, for the premium member. Um, we don't disclose the, the number of subscribers. It's, it's healthy. It's allowed us to grow at the pace that we've been able to. Uh, we've also obviously raised capital from, from investors, but uh, uh, it's done well. And, you know, our thesis remains the same, which is that we're going to continue to invest there. We feel like, we feel like the free is good. Premium is great. And really what we're focused on today is how do we make premium as accessible and, and as inviting to everybody on Strava? Um, uh, not just somebody who's got a $2,000 power meter on their bike. That's a no-brainer. If you've got a power meter, you should be premium because there's some really great features in there. But over time, we're very much focused on what does premium look like from an overall benefits perspective? How can we work with partners to uh, generate premium opportunities? Um, a beacon was a great example, a new feature that we launched late last year uh, that allows you to basically uh, alert a couple of friends or loved ones that you're going out on a ride. And just it's just a live tracking mechanism that it's just a, it's been turned into an amazing safety feature. Uh, we've got some great stories of folks who beacons turned out to be mission critical. And so that, that's on the, the premium side of the house. Okay. So things like that that allowed mean- us to differentiate. Yeah, and just for the the non cyclists listen, Beacon it, it basically tracks where you are, and, and a, you know, your wife, husband, whatever could follow that along on a, a map and see where you are. And, and if you stop suddenly, it would send kind of like a crash alert, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's uh, you don't have to be a Strava member. It just sends you a text. You can click on that text, and you can literally just you can monitor exactly where somebody is. And we've had some really compelling stories that people call in where. Sure enough, you know, they were stopped. Uh, we had a gentleman in the UK who uh, got himself into some trouble. He broke his, his foot in a really bad, bad way. I uh, wasn't able to move. He was out in the uh, pretty remote area. And it was the fact that his girlfriend realized that he'd stopped, along with the fact that uh, they had an accurate GPS location that they were able to get the search and rescue in there and, and save his foot. So awesome. it's, uh, yeah, just little examples like that. So as far like, what are some of the other, well, actually, first of all, how much does this premium subscription cost? Uh, there's two options. It's either $7.99 a month or $59 a year. Okay. And so how do you incentivize people to jump from the freemium, the free version to the premium? Like what's, what's the sales pitch? What are some of the key features and not just for cyclists, but for runners too, who don't have things like a power meter and stuff? Yeah. So uh, easiest thing we've found is to offer a trial, is to try it out for 30 days, free trial and, and, and see what it's like. And what we find is that there isn't any one specific feature that's the primary driver. It's very much dependent on somebody's unique experience. Uh, somebody might fall in love with Beacon and just find that that's mission critical. They have to have it. Uh, there's other situations where uh, there's other there's other fun features. I mean, I'll just give you little sample examples. Uh, if you have a heart rate monitor, there's all kinds of really great heart rate analysts uh, uh, analytics. Sorry, that uh, you can access. Um, I happen to love the one. So I'm a single dad, 49 years old. I got twin boys. I am not going to be a KOM anywhere anytime soon on any trail in my neighborhood. But as a premium member. I have the ability to just filter down so that I can, I've joked with the team for years, where's the filter that shows single dad, 49 twin <laughs> boys, because that's who I want to compete against. 
right? It's not quite that that refined, but I can see how I'm doing relative to guys in my age group. Uh, I can do it by club. I can do it by my, uh, you know, just my buddies. So just giving that that level of uh, comparison so that I can kind of get down to that granularity, that's a premium feature that's proven really valuable. Probably the most interesting stuff we're doing today, Tyler, is more with our partners. You know, more and more what we're finding is that um, premium memberships can also come from from third parties, from folks offering, whether it's a discount, now that you're a premium member. Um, yeah, I just, I'm trying to think of a good example that we saw recently. Um, uh, won't be terribly relevant to the cycling community, but Lululemon, they just surprised all of our members at the end of last year. They just gave them $30 and just say, hey, if you're a premium member, here's $30 to spend on any of our gear in any of our stores. And those are the kinds of things we couldn't have been able to offer a few years ago. We now have a large enough community and active and engaged and passionate group. And so we're able to just bring these, we call them surprise and delight moments. These opportunities where as a premium member, there's just these, these perks and these benefits. And those are the kinds of things we're hoping to bring more and more to market. That's cool. Did, does somebody like that have to let you know ahead of time or do they just have license to run a promotion using your name as an incentive? No, no, we work with them. We work with them closely. Uh, we want it to be something that's integrated well so that people understand how to do it. How do you make it easy? How, you know, in, in a case like that where you're trying to bring a, a third-party benefit, you know, how would they actually um, enable the coupon or something like that? So, no, there's a full team that, that works very hard to think about those integrations. Cool. And then from a product standpoint, there's other features you guys have that I imagine are done to – you know, kind of build the user base and then keep that user base on board and, and engaged. Um, one of them, you have like clubs and maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how that benefits the business and the brand. And then the, the newer one that you guys recently announced was athlete profiles where you I guess it's a limited release initially where some well-known athletes can go on and create almost like a Facebook profile and, and interact with their fans and stuff. So, can you tell a little bit, like, what is the, the reasoning behind creating these features and how do they benefit you guys? Yeah, so uh, the whole thesis here is this idea that uh, the strength in Strava's experience for any member is in the community. Uh, we, we've always said, if you come on a Strava and you want to be in what we call single-player mode and you want to treat Strava as your personal training log, you can do it. It's actually very easy. There's all kinds of ways where you can be very private. You don't have to follow anyone. You don't have to see any, have anyone see your data. And we'll always have that as an option. Uh, and we recognize that that's important to some people. They want that privacy. They see Strava as their, their virtual training log, and that's what they want to use it for. But where we really see the experience take off, it's, you mentioned it earlier, it's when you have that opportunity, have a little bit of gamification. You're able to sort of uh, connect with others. And so our efforts in, in the last two years has been to think about, okay, since sports are inherently social anyway, let's think about what social means in an athletic sense. And that's not, that's not about just, you know, kudos and comments. That's fundamentally thinking about how we can help people connect and, and meet up for rides or find events together, or, you know, what does the discovery look like? So that explains, for instance, why clubs came about, they already existed in the real world. How do we bring that same club experience to the Strava 
membership so that their existing clubs can now have a place for them. And over time, we'd love to think that this is the hub from which your local cycling club or your local cycling event can utilize the, the club's infrastructure as a way of sort of bringing everybody together uh, and and congregating in that way and sort of having that, that local experience. Um, we've seen other types of entities come onto the clubs. So today, you'll, you'll see a, a, a local cycling team create a club, and you'll also see someone like Rafa create a club or, frankly, multiple clubs. Uh, and it works, and we're finding that that's a great way for them to sort of create their experience. Uh, what you're referring to on the post side uh, and some of the athletes that we started to profile, that's actually a, a, that's a different initiative that we have inside Strava that is trying to address the following. We've heard enough from our members that there are other things that they'd love to see from Strava if we could develop the right infrastructure. And what I mean by that is somebody goes out and does a two hour ride, even if they do that seven days a week, that's only two out of 24 hours. There's these other 22 hours where they're probably thinking about their next ride. They're thinking about the next bike they want to buy. They're probably on bike rumor and they're checking out the latest frames that are coming out in market or the, what's the big cyclocross event that's coming up. And it turns out that, Today, Strava is not well set up to allow those conversations to take place, to allow um, the insights to, to be discovered. But what a great community to do that with, right? We've got this community that's got this inherent knowledge, lots of great tips and advice, lots of great questions. Uh, and how do we make it easier to, to find that information? And so the idea of bringing posts, which is something that people really start to see coming this quarter, to the Strava community was a way for us to allow for these conversations to take place. Um, I see something amazing on Bike Rumor. How can I share that with all my Strava followers? Because that is the perfect target that, uh, frankly, both of us, from a Bike Rumor standpoint and a Strava standpoint, would love to see sort of surfaced amongst the community. But, sorry, long answer to your question. That's the, where the, the athlete post theory came from and, and why the initiative is so important to us is to really create that opportunity for this, this conversation and the sharing of information amongst a, a passionate group that are all kind of passionate about the same thing. Yeah. So like, I know when I log a ride and stuff, people can comment on it, like it, give me kudos and stuff. And I can, <coughs> excuse me, I can comment back. How, how are the posts different? Like what's going to draw people to be more engaged and, and write more through the post than they would by just, you know, commenting on the ride and, and kind of keeping up the, the conversation on that side of, from a specific ride post. I think what happens, it's, it's, we're imagining short form. We're imagining, so I, for instance, I happen to be on the, the bike rumor homepage right now. What would you ask park tool? Ask a stupid question, right? That's a great one. So here's two things that we'd love to see happen there. One is the park tool has a club on Strava and they're interacting. We got to make it much easier for them to literally be able to ask those questions. But even better, I see this post by Tyler on June 26th. I want to share that with my Strava friends. Uh, how can I do that today? And if you go look, like for instance, on your, I'm, I'm literally looking on the bike from site, I can share it via Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, Pinterest, Reddit. I guarantee you, Tyler, probably the most interested audience for that particular uh, post that you have is on Strava. 
And so we're trying to make it much easier for us to be able for you to have that interaction and not for you to do it as the poster, but for me as the reader to share that with my friends, because that's, that's relevant to what we talk about on Strava. It's relevant to what I talk about when I'm out on my ride anyway. How do we just bring that there? So, yeah. so we need a button. Sense, but yeah, no, it's perfect. You need to do. give us a little yeah. integrated button so we can share that or, or let our yep. readers share it. Like that's, you said. Um, yep. No, that's exactly what we're doing. So we need to have the place for that to show up in Strava today. Right now, people are very, um, people are very passionate about their feed. They don't want the feed to change in any shape or form. And, what we're really asked of our membership is just be patient with us. We promise that we have our athletes best interest in heart. We are not, we are not out to create some new advertising model. We're not trying to figure out a place for ads, but we are trying to reshape the feed so that we can bring this kind of content to surface. And I'd love it if I'm scrolling through and I'm seeing my buddy's rides over the weekend and I'm kudoing and commenting but I'd be just as excited if some one of my friends saw a great post on Bike Rumor and they shared it. And I could go in, I could read it, I could comment on it, I could I could give it a kudo as well. We think that that's just as important to the community as, as somebody's ride. Uh, and it keeps people riding. That's our whole thesis. How do we keep this fun? Yeah, cool. No, it, it sounds interesting. Like that's it's a way better explanation than when I first saw it. I'm like, ah, they're just trying to recreate Facebook, which seems like a bad idea <laughs> but um so but yeah no. obviously there's a ton of development work that's got to go into this which and you guys are not a charity so what's the business model behind this is it you know like you guys are a pretty data intensive companies do you plan to collect more data through this or is this to just kind of see how users are where users are looking when they're not on strava like what what's the business model for this the, the business model really well first off I think premium sits as our core value proposition. And the more that we're able to work with partners and others, there's just great opportunities to continue to enhance premium. And so as a, as a, as a member who happens to subscribe to premium, uh, we're getting more and more excited about the way in which that's a differentiated experience on Strava. So and that be, only these gets posts will be, bring, yeah, these posts will be for premium members only then. You could imagine that some could and some could Okay. We're still playing with what that would look like. So that's a good example. Right now, uh, we're making it accessible to everybody. But you can imagine that there might be certain content that's subscription only. Uh, right? It just it's That's what we want to play with. Uh, I think the other thing that we're excited about is as we, if we keep the, take a step back. So one of the things that we've committed to at Strava is, always keeping the athlete at the, at the center of the universe. We know who we serve. Um, they are the day that we start to treat our community as a means to another end, uh, we're going to lose our community. That, that would, we know that. Uh, and we're deeply committed to it. Uh, if you spend time with Michael and I, it's like, you know, our mission in life is to keep ourselves active. And so that's what we're trying to do with everybody else. Where we get excited, though, is if we can bring the partners into the experience inside Strava, I, I've, uh, I'll sort of give you a, a personal example. So, for a variety of reasons that I can't even necessarily explain, I've kind of become like I've become a bit of an Ibis guy. I happen to have I've got an Ibis Mojo, I've got an Ibis Ripley. I, I, I love other bikes. I don't want to become a, like a favorite here, but it just so happens that for whatever reason I've sort of fallen. So I'm an Ibis guy. I'm an Oakley guy. I'm a I'm a Giro helmet guy. For whatever reason, those are the brands that I've sort of found myself um, connected to. 
today on Strava, it doesn't really show up that way. It's, it's, it's hard to see that. I'm not a single sport or a single brand person, but I have these affinities for these different brands and these different companies and, and want to see them supported effectively. And so what we're trying to explore is what is that ultimately that relationship look like where as we bring the community together, the community is one part, all the athletes, but it's also all the industry partners that support the community and help them be successful out there. And if there's some bridge that we can make between those, uh, those brands and the athletes themselves, we know there's something there we can unlock. And whether that's sponsorship, whether that's uh, access to, to gear in ways that uh, really weren't available uh, through traditional sort of retail channels, we're, we're, we're open to exploring it. But the fundamental thesis is the community is, um, is only successful, can only thrive if we bring the partners and the athletes and all the infrastructure together in one place. And so that's what we're trying to do through the post infrastructure, through the club's infrastructure. We're now bringing homes for the industry that sort of also have a, a relevant home in Strava. And now let's let everybody interact. And if we do that, we get pretty excited about the platform opportunity. Yeah, that makes Does that a lot make of sense? sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's really smart. Um, so I'm switch gears a little bit here. A, a few years back, you had a guy trying to hit a king of the mountain. And, and let me explain real quick for the non-cyclists listening. So within a ride that you guys are recording through the app or a device or whatever, you have segments. And so these are popular sections of each ride or, you know, a stretch of road, a climb, a trail, whatever, where it's recorded. And then you can go on and see, okay, well, I was the 20th fastest person to hit this segment. So maybe next time I want to go out and try and get a little bit higher of a ranking. And then you have, I think, climbs or just sections where people can be quick, crowned king of the mountain queen of the mountain um and it, and that's kind of where the gamification side of this comes in and it, it sort of made it fun right like you go out for your regular ride but now you know you're going to crush this one little section so that you can try and rank higher and show it to your friends and then it's you know it's bragging rights um you guys right. have had it's some people bagging. yeah bragging rights. And, and what's funny is just total aside is that you guys have sort of become like a verb in that, you know, did you Strava that or, you know, like, well, if you didn't Strava that ride, it doesn't count. And it's, it's just an ongoing joke, um, which is good. It means that you guys have completely infiltrated the culture of cycling. And I, I wonder, we can talk about that later if you want, if it's reached that same status in running or anything else. But uh, for the moment, so you have some people that go out and have sort of kind of tunnel visioned this goal and not paid attention to the surroundings and gotten hurt. Um, you know, they ran into a car, a car ran into them because they weren't following street signs, whatever it was. I, I think one guy tried, or maybe their family tried to sue Strava saying that you created an environment that was unsafe. And maybe you could speak a little bit about some of the challenges when you create these real world activity challenges that you guys really have no control over. Yeah, no, you're, you are. You're right. So the, the specifics, this goes back a number of years. I think this was 2011. Uh, we did. We, Strava had a wrongful death lawsuit uh, that was uh, uh, thrust upon us. Uh, a gentleman lost his life. A, a 41-year-old man was was uh, cycling in, here in California, and um, he was... He was going well over the speed limit. He he lost control. He went across the double yellow line and, and um, ran into an SUV. And so his family uh, sued us. And um, ultimately, 
we fought that vigorously, uh, and and it was the courts uh, ruled in our favor. And I think what we came to appreciate is we do know we we have a responsibility out there in the sense that um, if you're going to be part of the Stravic community, it's not a license to behave in ways that you wouldn't otherwise behave under the best of circumstances. So, you know, stand with us is is something that we've used as a phrase now for many years, which is just. Uh, we're out there to go have fun, um, but we need to keep things in perspective. Um, this is, you are not, uh, you know, Strava is not the arbiter for who makes the Olympic team or who makes the, uh, the team for the tour. Uh, that, that's not the intent here. Our intent is to create an experience and bring a group of people together that can support one another and, again, keep ourselves just a little more active than, than we were before. And, uh, I think we, we learned along the way that you get all types. You can get some type A, very competitive people who uh, probably at times, frankly, take Strava a little too seriously. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a matter of let's keep things in perspective. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're quick now to do everything from, frankly, we work with law enforcement on a regular basis. Um, uh, just if they have questions for us, there's all kinds of, you can imagine that if an accident happens, um, we might get subpoenaed uh, for the data, not because we're in trouble, but just because there's interesting information that uh, law enforcement or the parties need to figure out just exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, these are these are the realities of, uh, of making sure that we offer this. But um, we're not we're also very clear. We're not in the event business. That was what we were accused of was actually being in the event business. That's not it. You're you're voluntarily choosing to to post an activity to Strava and that's, there's, there's precedent for that. That's what the internet is, is, is posting information. And if you choose to do so, then it should be very clear sort of what your responsibilities are for that. Yeah, no, and I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm a big advocate of taking responsibility for your actions and you know, if you, if you do something wrong, own it, but uh, it's important to know how a company like you guys reacts to something like that. And um, yeah, Thanks yeah, I think we, you know, we, we, we looked at the, um, the other thing we did was we looked a lot at the experience. We felt like it, um, you know, you, we have flagging inside Strouder Day. We, we, a lot of people think that we can see everywhere and we know exactly what everything looks like. But when you have 10 million uploads coming in every week from 180 countries, we can't pretend to know, uh, you know, where is, safe and, and unsafe to ride and so we really depend on our community to make sure that if something is unsafe they can flag it if uh, uh, if that's the case then the leaderboard disappears and you know we won't encourage people to go and maybe push in a way that's that's unsafe so we're constantly looking at ways to ensure that what we're doing is giving our members choice we think that's the most important thing you should choose just like you said hold yourself accountable know that uh you're making a choice and then we'll give that out there but we want to make sure that the choices are are clear yeah so you mentioned a couple of things there that, that spur off into other topics you, it's funny that you mentioned that you guys uh are not the arbiter for who makes the team or who makes the cut but in fact you guys have run a contest where a strava athlete got to you know use their strava activities to get on a pro team and that was it was a pretty cool promotion how did that work out for you guys Oh boy, you're taking us way back. You're right. <laughs> we think we did that with a, a, a team here in the states, and 
I tell you, we had a lot of fun. That was a great group. Uh, it was a fun, uh, it's just fun to see the passion uh, behind everybody. And frankly, it was like a little mini version of, um, uh, you know, America's Got Talent or something, you know, guys that otherwise probably never have a chance to connect with a pro team and understand just the, the mechanics of how you make a team and the politics. This was a way to just sort of change the, the model a bit, at least for one time. And we, I'm trying to remember now the year we probably did that 2010 or something. Uh, uh, I think what we learned Tyler, for what it's worth, teams are a fickle thing um, and they constantly changing and the, you know, the economic models, I don't think we've quite figured that out yet and so forth. And um, we realized over time that we were best served by supporting the individuals rather than, than uh, teams themselves. Why you don't see a, a team Strava out there, uh, you know, riding in any kind of meaningful way. Um, uh, we've, we found that we're, we're better served by being at events and, you know, whether it's something as, um, sort of authentic as a, as a Leadville 100 being out there at that, or, or maybe one of the big pro events and, and just seeing how Strava can help shape that for the rest of our community. We've kind of evolved, uh, in that direction, but we're always open to these, you know, just crazy ways of, of figuring out how Strava can play a unique role in the space. Yeah, cool. And then another thing you mentioned was the feature set, like you mentioned the flagging feature. And I know, you know, like if I forget to turn my Strava off at the end of a ride and I drive home, which I do all too frequently, people can flag that because obviously I'm not driving 45 or riding 45 miles an hour in a straight line down a road to get home. Um, so you have some user input that lets people flag sections of a ride or a ride where you, and, and, and then the person who did the ride can go in and, uh, truncate the ride or cut out a section or, or just correct it. Um, which is cool. So I'm, I'm curious, like what, what protocol do you guys have for evaluating user submitted ideas? And then how many of the new features are you guys just developing in house? Yeah. So second largest team inside Strava after engineering team is our support or what we call our community management team. Uh, it's a great group, uh, run by a wonderful woman named Rosie and, and they are, uh, they are immersed in, uh, the nuances of trying to keep the community happy and, and make sure that if lagging is happening, that I mean, Tyler could go on for an hour in terms of sort of, sort of what's appropriate there and then where people cross the line and just become flag happy and, and or they use flags as a means of just sort of trying to, you know, be vindictive to their, to their one-time friend. Uh, so we have a bunch of policies in place. The guys are real good about responding back. Uh, and you're right. More and more what we're trying to figure out is how can we put many of the tools that our own team uses in the hands of our members uh, you mentioned a few of them, you know, today we try to give you all those editing tools so that you can quickly make corrections to, to a ride or truncate it. As you suggested, if you forget, we all do, we all forget to turn off our, our devices and our, our phones and so forth. And, and so how do we make that easy to fix? And we've got some great ideas on additional ways to, um, continue to put it in the hands. Uh, right now we have a lot of what we call segment noise, um, as you mentioned to the listeners what a segment is. Anybody can go and create a segment today. There is a tendency in our members to create duplicate segments over and over and over. And 
So we've worked hard to automate the process of trying to streamline that. And then ultimately, we want to put in the hands of our members just the way if you live, for instance, I think you're in Greensboro. Is that correct? Correct. So we want to put in the hands of yourself and others who are living locally there and know the terrain much better than Strava ever could, the ability for you to just totally clean up the the segment um, experience and have it so that you know, there's one segment for every one of the iconic climbs or uh, stretches of road or trail that are relevant to you. And um, that's something that we can do today, but it's, it's cumbersome. And so we want to figure out how we bring that to our members in a, in a more scalable uh, and just sort of refined way. Yeah. I imagine there's probably people out there that would do it for free just because they're, they're geeking out on it anyway, or so annoyed by all the duplicate segments and noise. But um, right. in the events of the event, are you guys looking at some kind of ambassador program or you just throw it out there and see who does it? No, I think that's exactly right. We were running a test this past winter where we were working just in a couple of uh, uh, small communities with the equivalent of ambassadors just to see what works and what doesn't. And you're exactly right in terms of can we find volunteers who this is what they're passionate about when it comes to the Strava experience and, and how can they help. But uh, we also know that just the things we need to do technically um, so that so that it's easy to um, and, and seamless in terms of the experience, because if one person creates a segment, probably getting we're getting into a level of, of nuance here that will just bore your listeners. But it's uh, it's just a, it's always that fine balance between uh, what we need to do technically and then what we can put in the hands of our of our members in order to uh, ultimately come up with what is what we all want, which is just a really seamless, clean experience that everybody's having fun with. And it's easy to understand and easy to play with. Yeah. And then um, similar to the lines of, you know, riding home and forgetting to turn it off and having that segment in there, there's this crazy new thing called e-bikes, which are kind of destroying some of the the segment times and KOMs and stuff. And, and there's some people that are, you know, probably rightfully upset about that. And, and I believe you guys now have a, a category for bike called e-bike that sort of separates those segment times compared to others, correct? We do. Yeah. Was- yeah. So we've we've got it as a separate activity, uh, and now we it's dependent on the on the community uh, being willing to to select it either yeah. as their default because that's all they do is ride an e bike, or on the day they ride an e bike that they choose it. And I think I think what happens is kind of what you described earlier. I don't think that there's a ton of malice. I think that people just forget to make that switch, and so all of a sudden you have an e bike showing up on a regular bike route or on a segment and it messes up with everybody um, we're always going to assume people are good and that that was probably a mistake and there's the occasional bad apple who just literally we've had these debates with them it's like why can't my e-bike just be a regular bike and (laughs) and it's really fascinating it's again people's passions um, we're incredibly fortunate that people are as passionate and fanatical about Strava as they are it's we know that um, we have to cherish that. It's it's a really, um, we'd much rather have that situation than to have something where eh, people are, you know, it's okay, but I can live with it or not. The challenge with that passion is that it runs very deep. And uh, it, e-bikes is a perfect example. Um, it's just there, there is a small but very vocal community out there that feels like the e-bike is just, just another bike and should be treated that way. And, um, I, we, we disagree. 
<laughs> I think it, it deserves its own category. It deserves its own space in Estrada. They've got a huge future. I got a lot of friends who love their e-bikes, but there's a performance difference there that, that has to be accounted for. Yeah. No question. Yeah, totally. I agree. Um, and, and it was, it seems like it was a pretty quick reaction on your part to create that category. So kudos to you guys. Um, so we've talked mostly about cycling cause that's, you know, that's my background and stuff, but I am, I don't know why I admit it regretfully, but I am starting to run more and stuff, but from a business standpoint, cause this is a business podcast. So real quick, like, are there any key differences in the business model for the running aspect of Strava versus the cycling? And then also, um, if you want to segue from that into kind of future opportunities, like where, what is Strava going to do and to branch out beyond cycling and running in the near future or long term? Yeah. So the, uh, the, the running was very different. So if I take a step back, um, one of the things that we underestimated was our ability to seamlessly transition from being a cycling only service to offering services for cyclists and runners, um, or for people who love to ride and to run, uh, we thought we could take the cycling experience, largely bring it over to runners, and that and because I'd been using it, frankly, as a runner since day one, and, and I found it pretty easy. So we thought, oh yeah, we'll bring it over. That was not the case. We we actually we had to take a big step back. One of the things we realized was we actually did not have a lot of running DNA inside the company. So we needed to take time to actually hire people who thought like runners who who. Uh, who uh, wake up every morning thinking about their next run and what that looks and feels like. There were big differences in the way in which approach running versus cycling. Um, I keep talking about cycling being inherently social. Running it's a little less so. It's it's not that I don't. I mean, I love going out for a run with friends, but um, let's face it, you're you're working harder. It's uh, if you don't have someone who's running it right at the same pace, it's it's a little challenging. And we found the more we studied running. There were all these subtle nuances. Um, it tended to be much more solo activity versus a group activity. Uh, uh, runners are creatures of habit. They'll, um, and I'm, I'm very much this way. I've got my four or five routes around my house that I'll do over and over and over because it's, it's really convenient, right? I've got my three-mile loop and my five-mile loop or maybe my 10K route, and, and I'll do them over and over. Whereas when I go to ride a bike, I love to explore. Um, I'll end up on largely the same trails, but I'll, I'll come at them half a dozen different ways. Um, and so we took some time to really rethink the, the running experience inside Strava, um, what it was to accommodate a workout. Um, you know, things like laps are really important for running. Uh, uh, things like match runs. We took our segment technology and we applied it to just matching when they went and did the same route over and over. But that was different from because runners didn't think about segments uh, the way that cyclists did. So that was a that took us a good year and a half, two years, to kind of rethink from an authenticity standpoint the running experience. Um, and then from a business standpoint, same business model, a freemium model, a premium subscription. Um, obviously, we had to rethink some of the features. Some work well. For both parties, Beacon is a perfect example. Whether you're a cyclist or a runner, it's great either side. Others, uh, you had to be a bit more specific. So thinking about, um, uh, in the case of like runners, obviously there's no power meter, but heart rate became something that was of high value. Um, and then 
from a strategic partner standpoint, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the device companies were still really, really important to us, whether it's a Polar or a Garmin or others. But we found over time that partnering with a lot of the other brands and, and others that uh, were speaking to the runners was of high value. So that's, you know, that's where a Lululemon or a New Balance or others um, have been sort of interesting partners for us to think about how we can uh, just launch different services, whether it's run clubs, uh, different kinds of challenges, things of that sort. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad I asked because that's some really good insight into take t- catering a product to different audiences. So I know we're running a little bit long. Um, real quick, my last two questions are always, what are you know one or two of the major challenges you guys have faced and how you've overcome them? And one or two quick pieces of advice for any entrepreneur looking to do something similar to what you guys have launched. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll give you a funny challenge. So uh, of which there have been many at Strava, but uh, one of the ones that we still laugh about because we started as a web company supporting uh, GPS devices, we, uh, we found ourselves in this uh, strange situation when we first launched our mobile app, we had this great theory and the theory was they'll launch, we're going to launch a tracking app that will allow a cyclist to, to use their mobile phone to track their ride. And when they hit finish and they hit save, our theory was, they're then going to go to this amazing website and see all this great data and all this great um, information that we're providing. Well, the good news was we had a whole lot of people now start to download the app. The bad news was that everybody assumed that that was Strava, that what they were downloading was the experience. And nobody was going to our website that was a mobile user, which now in hindsight makes complete sense, right? Why would I, I don't, I have all these apps on my phone. I don't go to their website. It's very rare that I, I go back and forth, but we were naive and just assumed that we could bridge that, that, you know, from mobile to web. Uh, but the reason it was a challenge was we did not have the kind of infrastructure internally to build the app that would allow us to create really a fully sort of seamless integrated experience on the mobile phone. And so we had to, we raised capital. We, we rethunk the entire business model to become much more mobile centric uh, and really began retooling the team and building out a, uh, a mobile centric team as well. So that was one of the bigger ones that ultimately has proven to be a great investment on our part. But uh, yeah, we were really naive. It was uh, it, it, it took a lot of effort to move from, from web to mobile as a company. All right. So b- before you uh, offer up any advice, then I, I wanted to ask, you guys have raised capital. Did you start off of personal savings? Like, how did you guys start the company? Did you go out for capital from day one? or And then what kind of capital? Is it VC? Is it angel investors? Yeah. So we, we um, when we started, Michael and I funded the business. We funded it for about two years. Um, uh, and we we candidly Tyler we weren't sure when we when we launched we weren't sure what the capital needs would be we weren't sure what shape the business would take and so we were prepared to fund it for a while and either take it to profitability at that point or or you know at least make a determination around the best uh, financing what happened was by late 2010 we saw two things that were really interesting one was uh, the conversion rates to premium were very very good um, so we could see a business model that was compelling and the other thing that we saw by late 2010 was that the growth 
through word of mouth and kind of just the, the viral nature of Strava was far more compelling than we initially thought it would be. And so based on that, we began thinking about bringing additional capital in for us to just sort of accelerate our ability to, um, to go to market. Uh, so we did. We raised, and what we raised, what we thought would be a, a friends and family round, turned into a venture round. Uh, so we raised, you know, our first round um, about three and a half million dollars in total um, over now the last eight years. Uh, you know, we've probably talked about the fact that we've Strava's raised between fifty and seventy million um, in total. So it's it's you know we've we've raised significant capital um, to do what we're doing, and that's been. Uh, major venture firms like Sequoia Capital and, and um, Jackson Square Ventures here in the Bay Area. Uh, our most recent investment was uh, an international investment, uh, a great firm out of Brazil. Um, but that's how we've that's how we funded the company to date. Awesome. So, what were you guys doing before? To, uh, like, did you keep a day job while you were getting this up and running, you and Michael, or did you quit and say this is it full time? Yeah, no, this is it. So. Um, so I mentioned that Michael and I uh, first were business partners all the way back in 95 uh, when we were trying to launch the first version of Strava. That particular company, uh, let's just say we pivoted. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we couldn't quite figure out how to create the virtual locker room, but we identified a different problem. And the problem was that we were talking to all these sports companies and they'd all built websites uh, and they were scared to death of all the customer interactions that were taking place. These were all companies like Trek Bikes and Mizuno Shoes and K2 Skis that had built these beautiful websites. But historically, all of the customer interactions had taken place at the retailer, not with the direct manufacturer. As soon as you launch on the web, the natural thing is for the consumer to go straight to the manufacturer. And so they had this email problem. They were all getting... Uh, just tons of email and they had no way to actually respond to it effectively. So a very long story short, Kana Sports morphed into what became Kana Communications, uh, a company dedicated to helping organizations basically respond to their customer email more effectively. And that business, it turned out that sports companies were not the only companies experiencing that problem. Uh, almost anybody who was launching a, a business on the web had to figure out what they were going to do with their customer email. And Kata was the name of the company that uh, we were able to build software that allowed them to do that. Hmm. How do so you spell that? Was that the Kana desk? That was, that was an enterprise software. Uh, oh, it was spelled K-A-N-A. Kana was the name of my dog. Huh. And uh, uh, let's just say, Tyler, we were in the right place at the right time. That business... Um, over the four-year period, we built that up to about 1,200 people. We we took it public in uh, uh, late 1999. Uh, if you remember back then, I'm not sure how old you are, but that was uh, that first internet bubble was pretty spectacular. Uh, and then it popped, and uh, everybody suffered the the consequences of the the internet uh, nuclear winter. But uh, it it did very well for us. I mean, it was a business that generated you know, hundreds of millions on an annual basis in revenue. And uh, it was a great business. And awesome. so we we took that public, which then afforded us the opportunity with our next business to be able to, um, uh, I left Kana in the summer of 2000. I served as a, a board member and investor for a number of years. And then um, frankly, just had the itch 
just there's nothing like being in the game, having your sleeves rolled up. I know yourself as an entrepreneur, it just oh, yeah. once it's in your blood, it's hard to get rid of. And so Michael and I just said, hey, we're too young not to do another one. And so we uh, we opted to uh, we opted to launch Strava. Awesome. Cool. So do you mind me asking, like, what percentage ownership in Strava you two still have, or is that? Can you share that? Uh, yeah, no, we don't. We don't. It's, um, I have a funny phrase that I'll share. Maybe this is a good one. That's a good piece of advice for entrepreneurs out there. So the phrase that we have is, uh, speed over greed. Uh, it's one of the many ones I use. If you're going to get it, there's always pros and cons to bringing investors in and not, um, I'm living proof. Um, you know, as an example, uh, in the first company that I mentioned, uh, Kana, when we did our first Series A, we raised $700,000 and we sold 40% of the business. Uh, and most people would look at that and just say, what were they thinking? But the problem was we were, you know, 25, 26 years old at the time. We had no management experience and we had somebody who was willing to give us capital. We had no leverage. So it was either take the capital and just bite the bullet and sell them a big chunk uh, and keep going or figure out something else. We did it, and the thing that, that I always point out to people, ultimately we built what I used to joke was a large enough piece of pie or a pie that my slice, even if it was very tiny, it was worth an awful lot. And uh, you know we had a market cap of almost $11 billion. So I did not need to own a significant, huge majority stake in the business to have a really nice outcome financially. So you fast forward to Strava, Michael and I started as 50-50 partners. We each own half of the business. Over the course of the last eight years, not only have we sold uh, shares to investors, but every single employee has got, a, has got some kind of an ownership stake. And it's important to us. We'd rather speed over greed. We'd rather go and build a great team and put this in place so that we can be the definitive leader. And if we do that, generally what we find is that the outcomes, they're just byproducts of doing the right thing. You know, the finances and everything else, they come later. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a great piece of advice and a great place to wrap up, man. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Tired. My pleasure. Great talking to you. See ya. You too. Bye now. There are so many lessons here. So be sure to check out the show notes for a deeper dive. I mentioned in the intro that they've built a platform, which I liken to WordPress. Are you building a WordPress or just starting a blog? Are you building a Strava or just pushing out training data? How can you think bigger and create something that people integrate into their lives because they've invested their time and energy into it? Facebook anyone? Two key benefits of having that type of platform is that you're collecting valuable data and you're able to push services and products out to users. Strava maximizes both, profiting on both ends. The other thing that stood out is their quick adoption of capital. Many of us start out small, pour our blood, sweat, and tears into our baby, and then are hesitant to give up control. I did this with my energy drink company and lost my ass. Had I taken venture capital, they would have brought in people far smarter than me to run it and the outcome would likely have been far better. Instead, I'm still paying off that debt almost a decade later. As Mark said, speed over greed, because sometimes a small slice of a giant pie is much more rewarding than eating a single serve portion alone. If you like this episode, you're definitely going to want more. 
Next week, I interview Specialized Bicycles founder Mike Sinyard. So real quick, can you hit that subscribe button on your podcast player for me? That's the number I need to grow to keep getting incredible guests like this. Thanks for listening. Here's hoping you grab a KOM this week. And until next time, keep building.